pray with me. Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would teach us each something new about you, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would change them and form them, transform them according to your likeness, Jesus. Shape our will and our minds with receptive Holy Spirit to what it is that you would have for us today. And Lord, I pray that that uh, would not just be for our own benefit, but that in transforming us into your likeness through your word, that you would make us more good for the world, and that we would bring more of your kingdom and your redemption with the mind of Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard this morning, we're going to engage the biblical story of some ordinary women, women of faith, and we're going to seek together to Shipra and Pua, and they were midwives to the Hebrew people who were enslaved by the Egyptians in the 400 years after Joseph the patriarch died. They were, as far as we can tell, ordinary midwives who were asked to do the unthinkable, to kill the male Hebrew children they were supposed to be helping to birth. Now, I told my husband I was preaching on this text today, and he said, oh, so it's just going to be a nice, uplifting message then. And I hope that despite the story themes, that's still true. The remarkable thing about these ordinary women is that even though they were insignificant in their context, in their time, their civil disobedience and their obedience to the work of God led them to be pivotal in the story of the Hebrew people. So pivotal, in fact, that the name of the Pharaoh is left out of the text, while the names of these two women are forever memorialized in Scripture. So let's turn together to Exodus chapter 1 to hear their story. And as you're getting there, I'm going to give you just a little bit of context for this story. At the end of Genesis, Joseph, who had established a good relationship between his family and Egypt and the Pharaoh, dies. At his death, though, he reminds his family of God's oath to their forefathers that even though Egypt at that time had been a good home for them, God was at work and had a bigger plan, a plan to take the Israelites to their promised land. Now, 400 years passed before we come to the Exodus 1 passage. During the in-between years, the Israelite community had grown quite large and distant from the pharaohs that had once protected them. In fact, the Egyptian power structures are threatened by the size of the Israelite population at this point, and they begin actively trying to diminish the population, first by enslaving them, making life terribly difficult, and then in a truly diabolical move by killing the male babies born to Hebrew mothers. So let's uh, listen together to the word of God to each of us, starting at verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. 
And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of, the, of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrat and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must go into the Nile, but let every woman live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, my daughter and my husband were here with us last time, so some of you had a chance to meet them. My daughter, Eliana, was born at 8.20 p.m. on December 20th, 2013. And I will forever be grateful to the woman who birthed her. You see... Our daughter was adopted. I'm going to call her birth mother, Debbie, for privacy's sake. And Eliana's story is, particular, is unique. Even for an adoption story, it is particularly unique. After walking alongside Debbie for all of her last trimester, Tim and I were amazed when she invited us to be in the room for the birth of our daughter. It isn't standard practice in the adoption uh, world, but we were overjoyed at that offer. We had planned on standing in the back corner behind the bed and, you know, being inconspicuous. And her, Debbie had asked her cousin Joy to join her in the room as well. Now, often, when a female family member is in the room, they will put that person to work, right, to try to save some of the nurses and doctors for some of the other patients. So, Joy, Debbie's cousin, was in the room, and... It came to the time to start pushing. And so Joy was going to be the one who would hold one of Debbie's legs. And when the stirrups went up, Joy went down. She was nauseous, and she was uh, faint, and she was not going to stay in that room, right? So as she was moved out of the room, I was called into the game and asked to hold Debbie's leg and cheer her on while she birthed Eliana. And it was amazing and awe-inspiring to help welcome my daughter into the world alongside her birth mother, whom we love and admire deeply. After several minutes passed, I was asked to cut the umbilical cord. Actually, my husband was asked to cut the umbilical cord, and he was like, no thanks. But uh, <laughs> So I cut the umbilical cord, and Eliana was measured and weighed, and we all celebrated all 7 pounds, 13 ounces, and 20 inches of our beautiful baby girl. Birth is an amazing miracle. <clears throat> and getting to attend the birth of a loved one, mother or child, is an honor beyond compare. That was 
as true when our biblical story was written as it is today. Which is why the very idea that midwives, women who had dedicated their lives to helping other women bring forth life, would now turn away from that call and be agents of death was nothing short of shocking to the original hearers of this story. Can you imagine being these women? Face to face with the most powerful person in your country, a person who obviously had no respect for life, a person who could immediately take your life, a person against whom, for all intents and purposes, you are utterly powerless, and at the same time, a person who can make your life infinitely easier, a person in whose good graces you could find wealth and prosperity, if only you follow their lead. Would it be so difficult to justify this act for Shifra and Pua? These children were being born into a despairing life of cruelty and slavery. Perhaps if there weren't so many Israelites, the Egyptians would feel less threatened and life would get better for the majority. Perhaps they could regain the equity they once shared. Perhaps the ends could justify the means this one time. I wonder if these are some of the arguments that Pharaoh used to try and persuade these midwives to rebel against their very nature. Perhaps they were. Nonetheless, Shifra and Pua knew something the Pharaoh did not. They knew the fear of the Lord. Verse 17 tells us the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Clearly, the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. But what does it mean to fear God? Is it simply to be afraid of harm that may come from a much more powerful person, from an infinitely more powerful being? The Bible uses the word fear at least 300 times in reference to God. And the concept is so much more deeper and meaningful than just like an ominous dread of disobeying. This fear of God is a reverential awe, a wonder and amazement, a deep desire to align with the rightness, the wholeness, the shalom, the loving nature of a God who is not distant from you, but is right here, a God who cares about your decisions and is at work in the world around you and is inviting you to partner alongside him for the good of the world right now and for the redemption of the world in eternity. That is the big concept of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about having the fear of the Lord in us. And yes, there is an element of the fear of God that does remember God's infinite power in relation to our finiteness, and God's infinite holiness in relation to our brokenness. And in that remembering, we find ourselves humbled. Humbled in such a way that with respect and trust and 
we are drawn to seek God's will above all else. That's what's being captured in Shifra and Pua's action when it says that they feared God. C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of this dichotomy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who loves that book? Yeah, I know. I confess, I could quote it all the time. Um, There's a a scene where Susan and Mr. Beaver are discussing Aslan, and some of you may remember this, and uh, Mr. Beaver informs her, much to her surprise, that Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe, she asks. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. That's an interesting dichotomy. In that same vein, one of my favorite theologians, Dallas Willard, once said that God is not mean, but he is dangerous. Shifra and Pua experienced this danger as they aligned themselves with God's purpose and chose civil disobedience to the power structures of their day in order to do so. They knew the will of God. They knew that God did not want them to murder those babies. They knew God was all good and all powerful and at work with them and had a plan, even if it was a dangerous one. And so they didn't shy away from partnering with God. After all, isn't there an element of risk in every birth? So, what difference does this ancient story make in our modern life? What does this story teach us today? In a beautiful book called To Alter Your World, authors Christiana Rice and Michael Frost use the metaphor of midwife to help us understand what it means to partner with God in what God is birthing in the world around us. They remind us of the words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah, who said, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, God says, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and pant. And Rice and Frost give us this beautiful and challenging admonition, writing, God the Spirit encompasses both feminine and masculine qualities and characteristics without being either man or woman, is birthing restorative structures, transformative communities, and world-altering moments of love all around us. As we, each and every one of us, step into the redemption story of God, the way of Christ lived in life today, giving out of what we've been given, will birth that redemption story. Just as the midwife comes alongside a laboring mother, so we are invited to come alongside God in the miracle of birthing new life for the world around us. The task is not to get God to do something we think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is already doing around us so that we can participate in every one of us, whether you're a man or a woman, we are each called to be Shifra and Pua, coming alongside God at work and 
participating in the birth of new things in our communities, and sometimes even in the face of adversity and danger. So how do we do this? You may already know, if you were here last time, my fondness for quoting Richard Foster. He notes that listening is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing necessary for successful intercession. And while he's writing about prayer, I think this is applicable here. Because, after all, what is prayer but a conversation with God? As we come alongside God at work, we would do well to enter into conversation with God and let that conversation begin with our taking a listening posture. So how do you listen in a way that helps you understand what God is doing around you? That's really our question today. In each and every one of your individual lives, in my individual life, in spirit and understand what God is doing. Certainly, this can be an act of first with our families, listening to the joys and the concerns, the needs and the desires of those who live in your house or with whom you share life. But it can also be the posture that we take in our neighborhoods. Sometimes this starts with just getting to know your neighbor's needs and then making space to hear about what is meaningful in their lives, where their struggle or hardship, listening for how you can bring joy or help. I had a neighbor recently, I was walking down the street, and um, I know most of my neighbors by name, um, even if I don't necessarily know them all extremely well. (coughs) And he shared with me that his father just spent days dying. What an incredible loss. And that's what I said to him, what an incredible loss. And he said, you know, I, I don't know if you're a person Listen also to your larger community. This is one of the ways we can partner with God. Start listening to the stories of our towns and cities, stories about the places we live, what makes it special, where there's been difficulty in the past, what obstacles are at play, and how do people experience those things. My husband and I moved up here from San Diego, and one of the stories that we heard right away about the Pacific Northwest, we heard two stories. One, that there are no Christians. That it's the most uh, unchurched place in the country. Um, And two, that there's something called the Seattle Freeze that just extends throughout South Puget Sound and that people are unfriendly. (laughs) And we haven't found that to be true. But that was the narrative that we heard as we came up here. And so we had to listen to that and decide how it was that we were going to move forward in our relationship with people. How would we saw the Seattle freeze, if that was a thing that really existed. Now, listening is the first step, but living with margin is a close second. How many people here are busy? Anybody busy around here? 
I know, right? Many, if not most people in our society suffer from a very particular sickness. And you know what it's called? It's called hurry sickness. By definition, hurry sickness is a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time, frequently in the face of opposition, real or imagined, from other persons. Now, living this kind of life leaves us with no margin or space in our daily life. If you think about it like the margin around a piece of paper, right? When we're writing something out in a Word doc, we don't take those words from the very edge of one side of the paper to the very edge of the other, right? We don't leave space around the paper, and we call it a margin. And so, likewise, our lives, if they're going to be read well by the people around us, need margin. We need space in our daily life. Keeping open free time to just be available and present to your family in your front yard or at a local watering hole for the holy interruptions that we often pass by is an important part of working with God. And Jesus exemplified this in his ministry. He had a lot going on, right? You have probably considered Jesus fairly busy. He had some things to do, right? But he had two regular places of margin in his life. First, he regularly took times of solitude to pray. You can only do this if your schedule isn't packed full. In the Gospel of Mark alone, there are 17 references to Jesus seeking prayer and solitude. To paraphrase Willard once more, if Jesus, the Son of God, felt the need to engage in such rhythms of margin, why do we think we can get by with less? Surely we would need more, seeing as how we are not without sin. And so we are called to look at Jesus' example and remember that as Jesus took those times of solitude and prayer, likewise, we are called to take even extended times of solitude and prayer. They are nourishing for our soul and for our relationship with God, and they help us to listen. The other expression of margin and rejection of hurry in Jesus' life was his radical availability to those on the way. It's clear that when Jesus taught the crowds, there seemed to be a regular time of prayer in those teachings and healing at those events. But Jesus was never too hurried to stop for someone on the way. Over and over again, we see this in the Gospels. Jairus' daughter, the woman with the flow of blood, the Samaritan woman, the widow of Nain, blind Bartimaeus, the group of lepers, all of them were interruptions in whatever Jesus had planned that day. But he always had time for these divine appointments. Jesus had margin. And if we're going to be attentive to what God is already doing around us, then we likewise need to create spaces of unscheduled, unhurried truly going to make ourselves partners with God in this, we will need to reckon with fear and failure. 
and often the fear of failure. Now, this has been a steep learning curve for me over the last few years as I've stepped out of pastoring the established church and into the vocation of church planting. I actually had to nuance the language here a bit because the Holy Spirit is still teaching me a lot about this. There's a part of me that wanted to say we must learn to live with failure and fear. A part of me wanted to say we need to learn to overcome failure and fear. And still another part uh, wanted me to say that we should journey through failure and fear. And perhaps it's different for each person at different times. I think it's likely we actually need to learn to do each of those. But either way, fear and failure are real risks. And the status quo of our society is in very uncomfortable with it. So naturally, we are too. But as we live in a place of listening, in a posture of listening, as we make space in our life to be with the Lord and then to experience his provision in the margin that we attend to, we will find the Holy Spirit meeting us in that fear and failure. Even when it happens, we'll find there's comfort and there's hope on the other side. I believe one of the gifts of both church plants and communities are willing to experience in their, the community around them, kind of like how I know you guys here have a, an ongoing experiment of sorts at one of your local uh, tap rooms, I believe. I know uh, Jim has talked to me several times about having a, a spiritual discussion forum there. That's a, that's a beautiful missional experiment. You guys should be so proud of that. I think it's great. For churches that are willing to step out and experiment in those ways, it's so important to recognize the gift of that, the gift that it gives the larger body to forsake the safety of the known for the hope of what is possible, because it would be really easy to only ever swing by our bosom, our churches, our homes, the homes of our friends. At Gather, our church plant, I know I've experienced fear and failure. But the most remarkable thing has happened in this moment. I've also experienced the deep love of my community and the abiding presence of God with me. I've learned to be more faithful because joining God in his work is not really ever in my control. All I can do is listen and be available and take risks in the hope that we'll all get to celebrate the birth something new and beautiful together as God invites us to step into the epic story of redemption that's already happening but not yet complete. And that's a story every single one of us are invited to step into. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you invite us into your epic story. That you give us the opportunity to partner with you, to come alongside what you're doing already, to be at work with you and to attend to the beautiful, wonderful things that are happening in our individual lives, in this community at Buckley, and in the world around us. Lord, I pray for each of us today that you would help us to listen more. 
because I'm coming from the same posture. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to think today about how to create more margin in our life to not be overcome by hurry sickness, but but to really create space where we can not only be alone with you, but can be available to others. And I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you would inspire us to take risks, to overcome fear and that you're great, and that even when we do fail, 